0: Hey pasa, move fuzza. Welcome to the Micropreneur Podcast, a podcast about people solving problems with mushrooms. And today on the pod, we are honored to have our first repeat guest, whose microdose company is actively contributing to a macro shift in the cultural landscape of our world. And I've got first hand knowledge of the tremendous value and efficiency packed into these little capsules. Everybody near and far, please give a warm welcome to Adam Bramledge of Flow State Micro.
1: For my clients, exercise is key. Like you have to move your body with these mushrooms. And that's what these mushrooms told me three years ago when they helped me dig out of the deep hole of depression is they were like my motivator. They were like my coach. They were like, time to get up, get out of bed. No time to feel sorry for yourself. When Adam
0: and I first connected a couple of months ago, I expressed interest in adopting a microdosing protocol because I have never in my 15 years of psychedelic research ever had one. And he generously offered to send me a 30-day supply of flow state micro stacks of functional mushrooms, which I decided to add my own dose of magic to. And over the course of the next 30 days, and in the 30 days or so since then, I've come to find extraordinary value in the combination of microdosing functional and medicinal mushrooms in tandem with a vigorous workout routine. I box three times a week and I noticed a substantial and visceral change and improvement in my ability to focus and to double down on my self-care routine in those workouts. I've been doing four days on and three days off with the Flow State Micro capsules and my subsequent self anointed regimen. And those have a quarter of a gram, so 0.25 of a gram of psilocybin mushrooms thrown in there on top of the functional mushroom stack, which we'll get into. So let's get down to business. K. Pasa Mufasa, Adam Bramlage of Flow State Micro, welcome back. To the Micropreneur Podcast, and you're actually the first repeat guest that we've had, and I couldn't be more excited about that, Adam. And I've just completed a 30-day Flow State microdosing regimen myself, so let's get into it. Thanks for coming back on the pod. How are you doing today?
1: Doing really well, Dennis. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I'd love to hear about how your month with uh, Flow State functional mushrooms went.
0: Absolutely. Well, let's start off by saying that last time we did a podcast, I was holed up in a hotel room in Crestone, Colorado, and on my way to the Telluride Mushroom Festival. And so much has happened since then. It's only been about six weeks or so since then. And one of the things that happened was kicking off my first ever microdosing regimen. I've been involved in psilocybin mushrooms and plant medicine for over 15 years, and I've never once done a microdosing regimen. So when you offered an opportunity, I jumped at it. And I'd like to say that I can wholeheartedly endorse it. It took a couple weeks for it to really get rolling for me. And I think When it really got rolling is when I doubled the stack. I noticed on the back of the package you sent me, and first of all, of course, there's functional mushrooms in this. We've got 125 milligrams in each capsule of, I believe it's maitake, chaga, cordyceps, and lion's mane. And then I added my own psilocybin. And finding that sweet spot after seeing that you don't have to only take one capsule. I'm a big guy. You know, I have a lot going on. I doubled it, and I would go to boxing, and I really, really noticed it. The intensity of my workouts, my focus, my energy, my overall vitality, and as a consequence of that, my creativity and my sense of confidence, all of these things were noticeably, overtly elevated, and I can credit that to the microdosing regimen, so I wholeheartedly endorse it. Yeah, it works. (laughs)
1: Well, thank you, man. And I think there's a lot going on with the functional mushrooms that you stacked with the magic mushrooms. You know, obviously FlowState Micro's plan is to be one of the first legal providers of psilocybin-based microdosing supplements when laws allow. Until then, we'll provide you with the four functional mushrooms that we know works really well with psilocybin. And then it was your job, Dennis, to add the psilocybin that you grew or procured safely on your own. Now, some people might have a sweet spot at 100, but some people like yourself might prefer to take 200 milligrams. That's probably a little bit of a higher dose for a beginner, but for somebody like yourself who's a psychonaut, who's comfortable with the way things feel, you might take a little bit more to get a little bit more energy and boost. Now, the cordyceps mushroom is also giving you sustained energy. It's increasing the amount of oxygen your lungs can take in. It's somewhat of a bronchial dilator. So I think we also need to be speaking a lot about the power of these non-psychedelic mushrooms and how these are also adding huge amounts of energy to your workout. One specifically cordyceps. Another one, chaga, which has over 215 phytonutrients. It's known as the king of mushrooms. I think there's something amazing going on with the chaga as well. And then you add lion's mane and the ability for it to increase neurogenesis, neuroplasticity. I really think the flow state stack, these four mushrooms with psilocybin, is really the future of microdosing and performance enhancement, whether you're a pro athlete, uh, or an artist. It was overtly
0: noticeable specifically with boxing because we train really intensely with my coach down here and I'm actually kind of a timid boxer. I like the workout but I don't love getting hit in the face. So some of the times when we were sparring, I noticed that I was more in tune with what my opponent was going to do before they threw the punch. And I think we've discussed that before maybe on the last podcast episode of like being able to detect these microaggressions or like being really plugged into that moment and that was awesome to me. Cause I really felt like there was a point when I'm boxing someone and these are friends of mine, of course, but I was in that flow state and I was just like, I'm going to fuck this dude up right now. Like I'm so ready for that, you know? And I didn't have that sense before. So, you know, I think it's, it's a holistic framework and uh, you know, people ask me about microdosing now. I'm certainly no expert, but I would wholeheartedly endorse like work out with it. I think that there's a lot of, a lot of potential there to be explored. And part of it, what I noticed is like, let's say it's the end of the workout and I've got it Crank out thirty push ups usually, I might quit after twenty two right, but I sort of had that sense of like you 've got five more on you you know you 've got seven more on you, and I think that the microdosing can push that for people, um, so yeah, I had a great experience. Thank you for arranging that and for setting that up very much uh, i want to I want to dive into talking about some of the traditions in Mexico where it's no secret to listeners of the pod that I live here in Mexico and I've been very fortunate to connect with a number of different indigenous tribes around the country. And one recent example of that was I got to hang out with the Lacondones who were actually the last uncontacted tribe in North America. I think it was about 1924 before they actually had contact with the outside world. And also they were never colonized. So they have an incredible and invaluable body of ancestral knowledge of how to use biotechnologies in the form of fungi and plant medicines, etc. But that knowledge is rapidly disappearing. It's really it's amazing in that the the eldest member of the tribe that I met was wearing their traditional garb, which is the white robes that they wear made out of tree bark, and the youngest members were wearing Hollister and denim jeans. And that's just an example of like how quickly globalization is accelerating, etc. Now, there is so much ancestral knowledge regarding fungi and different plant medicines. And it's my understanding that you've been researching this a little bit and, and diving into it. So I'd love to hear what you've got for us on that front.
1: Yeah, you know, for the last 13 years, when Dr. Fadiman has referenced indigenous use, he's basically just made the assumption, you know, we'd like to assume that we've been using these these plant medicines, these fungi, in small doses for a long time. But we really hadn't uh, found the proof, right, in literature. Um, and a lot of that had to do with the Spanish colonization of Mexico and the fact that they were very good at destroying all of the history and burning it and, and tearing it down. But recently I've rediscovered that microdosing was so prevalent in uh, the time of Cortez's arrival that Cortez took the practice of microdosing peyote and he used it on his own troops. He used it on his own troops to help them hike long distances in their heavy steel armor, right? So, obviously, peyote is not something that Cortez has ever seen before, right? So, he comes to Mexico. He's not only witnessing the indigenous people eat, consuming mushrooms, but they're using peyote. And at some point, he must have seen the tribes use small amounts of peyote like a stimulant. Now, again, in Mexico, if you go to the northern part, there's a group of uh, of natives called the Tarahumara, and they still today continue their pre-Columbian rituals, Right. They still own their land, and even though miners have come in and loggers, and even though their main component of their, uh, their tribe is nonviolence, they've somehow managed to keep their land. Well, one of the traditions that these hunter-gatherers do is they use small amounts of peyote to aid in their hikes. And they're also known as a tribe for being long-distance runners. They run over 100 miles in these little sandals with a pouch on their side that has peyote in it. And they're again using small amounts of peyote. Actually, microdosing was a way as an advantage in hunting for for many indigenous people. So obviously Cortez saw the natives using this. And although they began to drive it underground and kill the natives, when it served them, he would give his troops peyote so he could march them to the next genocide or wherever they were going to slaughter the Aztec and the native people. So not only do we see proof of it in pre-Columbian societies in Mexico, it was obviously so popular that Cortez saw it and uh, began to use it uh, with his own troops.
0: There's a lot going on there, and it's kind of exciting to see the fungi community embrace cactus. I've been seeing a lot of overlap of cultivators I know who are starting to function as stewards essentially where they're collecting cactus and they're taking care of cactus and there's a whole underground economy going on of people exchanging these things. I had read about peyote of course for many years and I'd never actually personally seen it. I guess I saw it in Amsterdam once but besides that I'd never seen it and now it feels like plenty of people i know all of a sudden have peyote buttons i don't personally have any would love to get some hint hint shout out listeners but it's fascinating to me to see this community kind of seeing the overlap and seeing that these plant technologies have a profound impact and re- we're just rediscovering what's already been known we're not re- you know we're not reinventing the wheel we're just like rediscovering what's already there
1: and if you think about plant technologies i mean the cacti uh, are very special you know they're similar to the fungi like ayahuasca you have to take two plants you have to cook them down you have to put them together that's a process with fungi you know you pick it up you eat it and it's similar with with peyote i know with san pedro you have to prepare it but the cactus you know mescaline peyote san pedro these are very special plant medicines and uh slightly different than something like mushrooms or lsd ayahuasca i know when i've done peyote in ceremony with a a shaman from ecuador that it was one of the most Magical experiences of my life, you know peyote is the grandfather. There's very masculine energy to it. Whereas ayahuasca is the grandmother so there are uh, Specific needs and uses for these plants since time immemorial. I mean Terence McKenna has a quote where he believes that uh, Small doses of mushrooms were also lending to the stoned ape theory You know it wasn't just large doses that these tribes were eating. They were eating small doses and again Why would you eat small doses? because it's gonna aid in things like hunting, tracking and gathering, being able to see the camouflage of the animal through the woods, all of those important things that's gonna give an advantage to your tribe That's going to maybe survive compared to the tribe that's not maybe using these fungi or cactus-like medicines.
0: 100%. I've actually noticed I microdosed, maybe it was a mini-dose, and played basketball back when I was in college. I was just like, I want to see how this works. And I was so locked in. And it was like, I could do no wrong. And I don't want to attribute that 100% to the microdose, right? Like, I maybe just had a good day. But I I had enhanced visual acuity. I felt, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here, but it really works in my experience. And also a a point I'd like to make about the microdosing is how accessible I feel it is to the broader general population. I come from a very traditional mainstream background. There's a, a broad segment of the population who does not want a psychedelic experience, right? They are locked in, they're doing their thing. But I found some of these folks have increasingly shown interest in microdosing where they're like, look, I'm not really into doing a whole ritual, I don't want to change my life overnight or anything like that. But like, I if there's all these benefits and I'm here, you know, missing out on these benefits, there's more to this. So I just think that microdosing and sub-perceptual or perceptual microdosing maybe is more accessible to a broader segment of the population and also there's an issue I think in my case and with a lot of people that I've known with like reintegrating into society after having an impactful psychedelic experience it's very jarring a lot of our society is not necessarily set up to reinforce a lot of the values and experiences that you may take away from a, a grandiose or a bigger psychedelic experience but with microdosing it's very gradual and it's something you can bring into your everyday life and you don't have to go through that culture shock of trying to integrate some profound visionary experience or state with your nine to five job and your relationship and this and that and the other. So that's another edge I see where microdosing really can boost a lot of people's wellness overall.
1: Yeah. And you know, my mom is a a good example of this. She'd probably never think of eating a large dose journey or uh, taking that trip, but microdosing has taken away her anxiety and changed her life so much, you know, and there are so many people, like you said, that might have a lot of fear or trepidation behind a large-dose journey because they can be very challenging and at times scary. And like you said, this is where microdosing can start to introduce a lot more people to the beauty and power of these psychedelics as healing tools. And again, when you take a large-dose journey, it's very perceptual. It's very hallucinatory. You're not in your day-to-day life. You're in a different reality. And like you said, it's jarring when you come back to normal reality. What's different and what's so special about microdosing is you get this little edge or advantage in your day-to-day life. You can't get that from a large dose of ayahuasca. You can't get that from 40 dry grams of mushrooms or 5 dry grams of mushrooms. Like, You get to have improvements and more joy, more creativity, more energy in your day-to-day life. And that's why in my practice, for my clients, exercise is key. Like you have to move your body with these mushrooms. And that's what these mushrooms told me three years ago when they helped me dig out of the deep hole of depression is they were like my motivator. They were like my coach. They were like, time to get up, get out of bed. No time to feel sorry for yourself. Get your ass to the gym. Let's go. Another set, faster, harder, longer. And it was discipline. Mushrooms gave me discipline. And as a stoner for the last 39 years, I'm almost 43, I lacked discipline. And that's what these mushrooms gave me. They got me to the gym. I'm smoking so much less herb in my life, you know. Um, I'm eating better. And there isn't that normal self-talk of, oh, what's the point of going to the gym? Or you're out of shape. Or Instead, it's, it's a motivator. And I think that that's these mushrooms blocking the default mode network, building new neural pathways where we're creative, we're energized, we're not in our old stories. And I do think that, like, exercise is really important. That's why people are depressed. That's why most Americans are depressed. We don't move our bodies. We don't get off the couch. We sit in front of a screen. We scroll Instagram. And the mushrooms or plant medicines are like, it's time to get off the couch. It's time to get out of bed. It's time to move your body. I mean, if you weren't in shape years ago, your tribe wouldn't survive. If you couldn't run 20 miles and hunt down that animal we wounded, we're not eating, right? So this laziness This not moving our body, this sedentary uh, nature of Americans or uh, humans as a whole these days is something that mushrooms can help. To motivate you beyond
0: hundred percent. And I, I made this observation numerous times over the last year living where I do, where dancing is very popular and I'll have friends from California or New York or whatever, come out and visit. And I take them out. We just did on Saturday night, go dancing. And I'm like, man, nobody I know in the States, like just goes and dances to salsa music and look around this room. I don't really think anyone here is depressed to be honest. And maybe that's a sweeping generalization, but they sure look happy. And you see, and I think there's that connection of like people moving their bodies, dancing to the music, enjoying themselves and in that sedentary lifestyle and sort of isolation factor that's been introduced over the last two years we've lost a lot of that and it's time to get it back it's time to figure out how to get it back Um, shout out Pelotone everybody been telling me about the Pelotone so we are living in a truly enchanted and robust era of challenges and opportunity I believe that certainly there's tremendous amounts of problems tremendous amounts of of uh, challenges that we're facing but I think there's ample amount of opportunity Uh, they go hand in hand right So, one of the things that I'm I'm very interested in is this interplay and relationship between technology and psychedelics. Arts, culture, technology, psychedelics, they seem to go completely hand in hand, and I have a lot of fairly in-depth experience with this coming from University of San Francisco and living there at the height of one of the most recent tech booms and connecting with a lot of people and movers and shakers and whatnot. And I saw, you know, I I got to hang out at a houseboat a lot that was formerly owned by Alan Watts. And the current owner, at least as far as I know, when I was there in the area, is a tech magnet. And these guys were like doing plenty of LSD, plenty of microdosing, smoking DMT. And, you know, I heard about all of these different entrepreneurs and movers and shakers in Silicon Valley who had connections to psychedelics. And I started reading about it. The houseboat owner co-authored a few papers with Timothy Leary. I just started diving into that, and they seemed to go hand-in-hand hand together. And I think there's a conference coming up that wonderfully represents this, and I believe you're going to be a panelist at that. And that is the Meat Delic Conference in Las Vegas at Area 15, which I believe is affiliated with Meow Wolf. Uh, I've been to Meow Wolf in Santa Fe, fucking loved everything about it. I think this is an amazing thing that's happening and I would love to be there personally but uh, you can be there in place. Uh, what What do you got for us? What What are you looking forward to about the Meet Delic conference coming up?
1: I'm really excited to, to hear the different panels and, and all the different speakers uh, and then just give the psychedelic community a psychedelic setting to get together in. Not only are these amazing panels happening during the day but in the evening there's fabulous DJs and psychedelic gatherings and parties and That's what it's about more than me, than than me speaking about microdosing. It's about the connections in the community, or the people you meet. And more than anything, hearing their stories. And when I go out and I speak at these conferences, this is what I continue to hear. I continue to have people coming up to me and telling me how microdosing has changed their life you know, whether they were dealing with depression or eczema, you know, eczema is the latest one that I've figured out with the flow state blend that has been helped by psilocybin, chaga, mataki, cordyceps, and lion's mane, um, you know, skin conditions, traumatic brain injury. Um, so I'm excited about getting back in the community and hearing from other people on all the different things that microdosing has helped them with. And, and you know, uh the bay area menlo park palo alto san francisco this was the heart of the psychedelic movement back in the late 60s and 70s you know this is Silicon valley um we've known for quite some time that psychedelics help with creativity and problem solving um and dr fadiman in i think 71 or 72 at ifas did an amazing study with a bunch of uh, engineers and people who weren't able to solve a problem in their life for over a year. It was an unsolvable problem, right? And it had to be like a professional level problem, whether you're an architect or an engineer, very complicated. And Dr. Fadiman brought them in on three different occasions. They each got large doses of LSD three times. And by the end, every single person had solved their problem. And there were a few people, they were uh, architects, and they had to present their drawing to a third party that wasn't taking lsd right and those third parties accepted all their drawings so basically all the problems were solved in three sessions of high dose lsd so i'm a believer in problem solving can happen in high dose it can happen in microdose as well and i think like paul stamets says this is going to be the answer to us solving the problems of global warming and weirding and energy and all that is people need to get happier more energetic more creative and when they get more creative from microdosing mushrooms we're going to start figuring out the problems
0: Sure. And I'd love to talk about stacks now because that's a fairly recent term in my vernacular about stacking. And I've heard, you know, so many people have different stacks and there's the Stamet stack and then you've got the flow state micro stack. And I just recently became aware of a company in Tulum down here in Mexico that's got a stack and they've got, you know, there's people blending herbs in there, ashwagandha and things like that. And I just want to know, like, how far can you push it with a stack? I mean, there's four functional mushrooms in the flow state. I've seen one with seven. Are we going to see companies out here with fifth, 15, you know, micro ingredients in a stack or is there, I mean, obviously you found what works for micro is optimal, but do you think that there is a point of diminishing returns where it's like, do we really need to have like, you know, 10 different things in this stack when four of them will will work really, really well?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I have seen people that are doing stacks of like 15, 16 ingredients. Um, And personally for me, um, I don't know that you need all of that. The first thing I want to say is everybody should get really comfortable with what mushrooms and herbs work for them, okay? And then they should consider building their own stack, right? But when you start putting 15, 20, 25 ingredients in it, it's hard to figure out which ingredients are actually giving you the benefits, right? So in my own stack, I limit it to the four mushrooms that work really well in a lot of different areas, brain, gut, immunity, energy, Function, performance, all that stuff. That's why I choose the mushrooms in my blend. Paul Stamets stack is Lion's Mane and Niacin, um, along with Magic Mushrooms. I don't use Niacin. I'm not a big fan of Niacin. Some people love Niacin. So for beginners, you might want to try microdosing one week with Niacin, one week without. See what works best for you. Um, But that is going to be the future. There's going to be hundreds of companies with hundreds of different stacks and uh, everybody will have their niche of, you know, I've got the goji berry, or I've got the, the, the ashwagandha, or I've got that. But for me, my stack, the use of these mushrooms came from a large dose mushroom journey in and of itself, where I was looking for guidance. Uh, I was looking to know which mushrooms to use, um, and I got the download. Um, I was told by the fungal intelligence, these, these four mushrooms uh, in harmony with the magic, Uh, is all you need Um, but again it doesn't mean that people can't add you know certain other things that work really well with their system to their own stacks
0: sure and a quick story about niacin as i found out the hard way not to take too much niacin i was uh, living in san francisco at the time and i think i bought some vitamin c something really basic and it was a two-for-one deal at the walgreens and niacin was next to it so i read about it and i was like okay i'll try some niacin i think i took you know three or four of these capsules and I just got this gnarly flush, you know, where blood started rushing to my upper chest. It started burning. And I'm not the type to like over panic or freak out, but I was like, all right, that's the last time I'm doing niacin. Like maybe I'll, you know, microdose it eventually, but kind of lost interest in it very quickly once you get the niacin flush, to be honest. So speaking of of that, I am very interested in this connection or relationship and a potential synergistic opportunity between psychedelics companies and pharmaceuticals companies, okay? Because there seems to be a huge amount of disagreement and stigma associated with big pharma. And a lot of the circles I run in, it's like a dirty word to say big pharma or to talk about pharmaceuticals. Yet I've heard a number of different influential people speak about this possible synergistic relationship for psychedelics, a future where people are microdosing and there are different pharmaceutical companies and we figure out how to work together. I'd be curious if you've had any experience dealing with any of these companies or if, if that's something that you've given thought to of a future where we could just, you know, we could we could all get along and we could make these things work synergistically together to improve people's lives. And I think that's what it's all about at the end of the day is like, does this actually improve someone's life? Whatever product you're introducing to the market, is it t- tangibly beneficial to people and to the population. And so I'd be curious if you had anything for us on that take.
1: Yeah. I mean, we create the world with our thoughts and and what we speak into it. So we could look at the rollout as uh, something negative because big pharma has a horrible track record, or we could look at the positive of big pharma, which is they have a huge distribution system set up and regulatory boards and, and all kinds of stuff like that. Who knows how, uh, how fair they all are and, and and that they aren't corrupt. But yeah, maybe, maybe the foundations of big pharma and insurance companies and providers and connections to doctors and all of that, maybe that will help us roll out um, psychedelics. What's important is that we don't go the way of Prop 64 and the way that we handled cannabis here in California. And, you know, we have to be realistic. Big Pharma and Big Capital is already in Big Psychedelic. They're already here. You know, um, I heard that Compass Pathways just signed uh, Hamilton Morris from Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia, uh, w- which was interesting to hear. Um, but Big Capital, Big Pharma is already here. Um, and I don't honestly know how it's all going to roll out, but what I do know is. We really have to decriminalize these plant medicines and these fungi before we get into the legalization and the regularization. Um, More and more cities are doing that every day. Arcata just did that. But if we're going to give people the opportunity to use insurance one day to get their microdoses, we also got to give people the opportunity to grow their own mushrooms and make their own microdoses if they can't afford insurance or they can't afford going to the doctor. So... I want to support the little person more and give them the right to grow it on their own, make their own stack, make their own blend, and then as well evolve into a place where we can have a regulated market where if somebody doesn't want to grow it and wants to trust a company like FlowState, they can go into a dispensary, a pharmacy, something like that, and they can get their microdose uh, probably at first after it's prescribed like a doctor, much like medical cannabis rolled out here in California. So yes there is a great infrastructure laid out there by big pharma that we can hopefully tap into but again i do have some concerns there are some big players in this space already they're making some big moves they're looking to set up certain kind of monopolies around certain kind of treatments and we need to stand up to that um i was a part of the cannabis space still am to some extent and it was heartbreaking to see all of the ogs all the original farmers All the original people who were doing this long before Chad and Brad came in, who were doing this when helicopters were being flown over our heads, guns pointed at us, our loved ones being arrested and taken to jail. These are the people that should have gotten licenses, and they were cut out of it because of the regulatory stuff that big corporation put in so that only big corporation could get the licenses. So we need to do our best to decriminalize and give the small person the same option that big corporate, big capital will get when they do enter into this space because they're here, man. They're already here. I'm curious about the legal framework
0: of everything because you go to Jamaica there's a legal psilocybin mushroom industry you go to Holland as I've been to both of these places before and there's a legal truffle or psychoactive truffle industry and until pretty recently there was legal psilocybin mushrooms you could buy in smart shops and I just see these different companies including Flowstate who I believe has a partnership with a Dutch psychedelic provider I don't know if that's still currently in play but I believe they're called fresh mushrooms LTD and I've heard about various Jamaican companies you know shipping mushrooms Mushrooms to Canada, what does that international regulatory legal framework look like? Because I think sometimes as a community, especially a U.S.-centric community, and a lot of our listeners are based in the U.S., we think about psilocybin and legalization just in the context of the United States or on a state-by-state basis, but really this is a global movement, and you've got more and more countries who are starting to look into the space, including, I'm going to get the, the island nation wrong, so I won't say it, but one of the one of Jamaica's neighboring island nations is like all in on getting this legislation to change and maybe the next you know, legal destination where you can go and run retreats, but also have psilocybin-containing products that are bought and sold legally and openly. So I'd just be curious to hear from your perspective, what does that international regulation look like right now? Like when you want to form a partnership, if you're a, a micropreneur and let's say you're, you're kind of building your brand and you want to form a partnership with someone in Holland, are you still subject to a lot of the U.S. laws? Are you just doing business and registering
1: your company in Holland or whatnot? What does that look like? Yeah, it's very complicated and you, you really got to get a lawyer that knows all of the laws in these other countries. Um, I spent a lot of time with Flow State looking at Jamaica and looking at the possibility of launching out of there because we could legally put psilocybin in the product. The problem is you can't ship from Jamaica to anywhere in the world. That's that's still illegal. So psilocybin is only legal in Jamaica. Now, the really amazing thing, in my opinion, um, because I've been to Jamaica and I've, I've seen how poor the population is still, the amazing thing that the Jamaican uh, government has done is if you're an um, entrepreneur from the United States and you want to go down to Jamaica and get a license or own a company, you can't. Um, You have to find a Jamaican resident as a partner, and they have to own 51% of the company. So Jamaica has set it up so if an American wants to come down and exploit Jamaica and uh, start a company, they can't own 100% of it. They have to have a Jamaican partner that owns 51% of the company. So uh, a foreign businessman can't go to Jamaica and own 100% of anything. Um, So that's important to remember. Holland is is a different place, different set of, of... issues like you said you used to be able to go into a smart shop in Holland and get every kind of psychedelic psilocybin mushroom you've ever seen and then legislation came in to make them illegal and due to a loophole uh, truffles are still legal but truffles are only still legal if they're wet so truffles have to be sold vacuum sealed and still moist the minute the truffle is dry it's illegal. So there's all these interesting and crazy-ass loopholes. The other thing is that um, due to some UN treaty, I forget which which one it is, um, there are providers in Holland that are shipping these truffles all over Europe to any country that is part of this this UN treaty, and um, it's in this gray area where technically it's uh, you don't know if it's legal or if it's not legal. So it all it all depends on the country and and customs, but Flowstate is not currently selling or shipping truffles in, in uh, Holland. We've decided to leave that with the duchies, and, and we're going to wait for our time here in the United States. But the partners that we work with in Holland, they're still doing it. They're extremely successful. People are, are loving the truffles. Um, but again, truffles are different than psilocybin mushrooms. For those of your listeners that don't know what a truffle are, They basically are the mushroom before it pops up and becomes the big, beautiful, fruiting body. And they kind of look like little, uh, I don't want to say it, but like little tiny miniature piles of poop or something like that, you know. And that is what people in Holland and Europe are using to legally be able to microdose super awesome. I figured as much. And it's just, you know, like you mentioned,
0: it's a gray area and there's a lot of people on all shades of the gray spectrum right now. And increasingly, you know, I'll have conversations with people or I'll get turned on to a micropreneur or a company doing something. I'll be like, there's no fucking way that's legal, but they're doing it openly right now. And so there's a number of these cats that are, you know, pretty audaciously openly selling some different products and good for them. Good for them. But, uh, you know, hopefully we see these laws change very soon because I think you mentioned this the last podcast episode, mushrooms don't know they're illegal. You know, they really don't know they're illegal.
1: Yeah. I mean, the the long and short of it from a business aspect, and I, I don't mean to get too business on you here, but I did learn a lot of hard lessons in, in the cannabis space. And there was a lot of gray area that went on for most everyone that went legal. And that's just the reality sometimes of, of decriminalizing and, and legalizing but from a company standpoint for myself I see Flowstate state being one of the leading brands if not the leading brand not only in the United States but around the world for safe and reliable microdosing supplements in order to get there I can't legally sell stuff because one day there's going to be all kinds of people from the SEC to investors looking at the company's past to make sure we didn't do anything illegal so for those of you out there that do want to be a part of the legal times i would caution you to be careful right and you don't want to do anything at this point that's going to keep you uh, later down the road from being investable um, or for you know maybe being able to uh... grow to a stock exchange one day if, if that's your hope so You have to be really careful right now. You don't know online who's a DEA agent or who's a sheriff or or who's trying to set you up. So you have to be careful. And at the same time, so many people are suffering right now. And we don't have time to wait for the FDA. We don't have time to wait for approval and and doctor's prescription. So I also have to honor the underground mycologists and cultivators and providers that are providing safe and reliable fungi, for people. But for those of you that have a company and you want to play the marathon game, not the sprint, you definitely need to be really careful about openly selling illegal products online um, because that's something you're not going to be able to scrub off the internet at a later time.
0: Sure. And thanks for that insight right there. I think that's very relevant for quite a few people who are trying to figure out where the line is. And that line just keeps, it's like you're high when you're looking at the line. You're like, is that thing moving? You know, it doesn't seem to be be in one place. Like what is allowed and what's not allowed. And so thank you for diving into that. I think that's really important. And uh, several of our listeners surely will be making a note of that. Um, Okay. We've touched on pretty much everything I wanted to dive into today, but I always like to ask, What's next? I know you've got the Meat Delic conference going on. You just uncovered some game-changing research that you dropped on the pod right now. But what are some other projects or irons in the fire that you're excited about that you can share with us right now?
1: I am really stoked about a new book that I got coming out. It's called The Microdosing Manual, and uh, it's going to dive into some of this historical context that I've found. Um, Not only that, we'll look – it's basically a manual for you on – on how to be a uh, safe and effective microdoser. You know, we dive into the different substances, doses, protocols. Um, but then the fourth part of the book is all personal stories um, from clients and people I've worked with in subheadings like microdosing for Lyme disease, microdosing for autism. So it's going to have some amazing personal stories similar to Dr. Fadiman's Psychedelic Explorer's Guide where he had Uh, handwritten letters by people sharing in their own words their experiences. So I'm really excited about the microdosing manual. That should be out uh, sometime in the new year. Um, I've got a new microdosing mastermind course I'm going to be launching with San Francisco Psychedelic Society uh, again after the new year. I've got my uh, How to Microdose intro course with Double Blind Magazine that's available on their website. So right now, uh, my biggest thing, because I can't sell psilocybin legally, is education. Um, education is so important. So I'm, I'm creating this manual um, and I'm creating these online classes. And then again, um, I look forward to doing more conferences and more workshops, uh, specifically question and answer where people can ask the questions they've always wanted to ask and get the answers that they haven't found.
0: Awesome. We're all looking for answers at some level. So Adam Bramlage, CEO, founder of Flow State Micro, you already know. Thank you so much for being the first repeat guest on the Mycopreneur podcast. We'll definitely be in the queue for the microdosing guide when that comes out.
1: Thank you, Dennis. Thanks to all your listeners. Thank you to these beautiful mushrooms. They're definitely going to save this planet. There's so much to cover in the
0: mushroom universe and so many micropreneurs leveraging the infinite potential of fungi to create a more ecologically balanced inclusive and equitable world for all of us, mischievous little monkeys. I am completely stoked that you've chosen to spend some of your hard earned time in our little corner of the Mycoverse. Hop on the gram. Say what's up at Mycopreneur podcast. That's the handle. Don't get it twisted. We've got the full suite of social media up and running Twitter. Michael Pernure. got the YouTubes dialed in Michael Pernure. drop us a line. Tell your grandma and your cookie uncle, tell your wife and your kids, If you're a micropreneur yourself, you want to hop on the pod, by all means, Bienvenidos. Welcome. Don't be a stranger. Let us know your thoughts on this episode, and also let us know what you want to hear in future episodes. This is a team effort. Thanks for stopping by the Micropreneur podcast. Have a lovely day. We'll see you back here next week.